You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Thanks for listening to this special episode where John Sheeran is interviewing Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. Enjoy. So um, just to just start, just t- tell us what, what your role is here at PFF and how long you've been here and what, what really PFF is all about to you. Yeah, that's a great start here. I'm, I'm the Associate Director of Content here at PFF, so working directly alongside George Chahuri, who is our director of content and research and development, who um, I think is, both of us manage the content here at PFF, trying to create awesome content for consumers. There's this whole other side to PFF that is B2B, business to business sales, that working with the NFL teams, NCAA teams, agents, media, those guys, those you know, con- you know, those consumers, those clients. But there's this other side too. I mean, the side you're probably more familiar with in the consumer side, where we're selling subscriptions, access to our tools and our, our fantasy tools, betting tools, alongside you know, advanced statistics and things like that. In addition to creating content um, for for unlocked, you know, for free, unpaid users, un- non-subscribers, and creating that content is very important. There's there's all the way down to who's editing it, who's writing it, and we kind of. George and I collectively manage the team that is um, writing the content, putting the videos on on YouTube, putting you know the social media strategies together and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a complex role. Do a lot of things. I wear a ton of hats, but it, it's a lot of fun. And um, in addition to managing it, I do contribute to the content as well. Mike Renner and I do the podcast, Two for One Drafts. That is a lot of fun. I also write when I do find time and uh, some social media stuff here and there. But again, it's a lot of it's fun. Like on that content side, very fun. So now we got that out of the way, let's get to the real mean stuff of it. Uh, which team's trading for Joe Burrow when he doesn't want to play for the Bengals? <laughs> I don't think I don't know. I'm not buying into this whole he doesn't want to play for the Bengals. I don't think I, my take on it is, and I was having this conversation with George yesterday. You know, Joe Burrow to Cincinnati Bengals is a lock. It feels like a lock. Adam Schefter has reported multiple times that this is something that we can might as well write in Sharpie, maybe even tattoo it on our chest at this point. Joe Burrow going to the Cincinnati Bengals. I think. The next step is building around him because setting real, you know, re- expectations is very important for Joe Burrow. Going to the Cincinnati Bengals with the existing offensive line, the idea that AJ Green will no longer be there, defense that's going to give up some points, knowing that that lack of talent will be there. I think you have to set moderate expectations for Joe Burrow and do everything in your power as in that in that personnel staff to add around him, get Jonah Williams healthy, add to the interior offensive line. Bring in receivers that can separate. I think put in. I think Zach Taylor. I will say this: will do a very good job with Joe Burrow. I was really impressed with how he approached the game last year. I think he made a lot of data-driven decisions in how he structured his personnel. Ran he ran a ton of eleven personnel, most in the league from a percentage standpoint. And I think he was effective in 
limiting time to throw. Andy Dalton was ranked tied for first in time to throw. Bengals quarterbacks were ranked tied for first in lowest time to throw because they knew the offensive line was bad. And him being self-aware, him understanding the strengths and weaknesses of his roster is a great sign for the Cincinnati Bengals. There are a ton of other offensive coaches, offensive play callers that wouldn't have done that, wouldn't have looked at that offensive line, seen it as a weakness, and done things that Zach Taylor did to try and make that better. So I think I'm really happy with what Zach Taylor's doing. I'm really happy with what you have to be happy with it as a, if you are a Bengals fan, happy with what Zach Taylor is bringing to the table. I think the next step is the people that do make those personnel decisions, that do decide whether or not you draft Drew Sample in the second round, need to approach this draft and approach this free agency knowing they're bringing in Joe Burrow and they need to build around him. Yeah, so like the narratives about the Bengals, I mean, they're, 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 they're mostly true from the organizational standpoint. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like, you know, just comparing them to to the other teams that haven't had a lot of success, like the Lions, the Redskins, the Jaguars, they're they're more prone to spend money, which means they're more easier to sell. Like they want to win now. So, in terms of Burrow going to the Bengals, what what makes him so special where he can, can make them compete immediately? Because they do have talent on the roster, but like you said, there's a lot more stuff that they can do to build around him. Yeah, I think he's arguably the best quarterback prospect we've seen in the in the years of grading we've done at the college level. PFF started grading every player in the FBS in 2014, and before. Four, it was Baker Mayfield. He had the best accuracy we have ever seen. We, we do ball location charting for every college quarterback in, in college football, and we've been doing that for the past three years now. Baker Mayfield, on 10-plus yard throws, had like over 66% of his throws is accurate, accurately charted. It's something we'd never seen before. It was a big reason why we had him as the number one overall pick that entire draft. Joe Burrow, over 70%. And this guy's on an accuracy level that we haven't seen. And accuracy is one of the few metrics that does offer some stability year over year and going from college to pro. It's something that when you remove other variables like scheme, supporting cast, opposing defenses, accuracy shows up regardless of those things. And for that reason, that limited variability, limited volatility is very valuable. You can predict that Joe Burrow will be one of the more accurate quarterbacks in the NFL. What also Joe Burrow does well is perform perform at a high level from a clean pocket. Part of that is his maturity, his pocket presence, his ability to see pressure coming and understand to get the ball out and when not to. But a lot of that, too, is just being very good when the situation is clean. And that's something when you project to the next level, you can feel comfortable about the stability of that play. That's another thing with Baker Mayfield that we felt confident about because his clean pocket passing performance was so good. Joe Burrow, best season we've ever seen from a clean pocket. I think what, Joe, what separates Joe Burrow from these other quarterback prospects, though, is that pocket presence. We had concerns about Baker Mayfield coming into that draft about his pocket presence. He'd bail out of clean pockets, see some phantom pressure, make some poor decisions under pressure those types of things, Joe Burrow doesn't have that. And for that reason, you have to be really excited what he can do, even in those situations that are great. He can create outside of structure. He can add above expectation outside the pocket. And and when you have a quarterback like that, it it, it adds to your offense. We've seen that. I'm not making the comparison to Patrick Mahomes, but quarterbacks like Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, those two can do a lot of great things when the play breaks down or when they need to add above expectation outside of structure. Joe Burrow, He's not on that level yet. He won't be Patrick Mahomes' level as a rookie, but you've seen that upside at the college level. Right, and that was kind of leading to my next question because creating that structure is so much more important nowadays than it was you know, five to ten years mm-hmm. ago. It's not more of just looking at the, the prototypical pocket quarterback. It's more looking at guys who can make plays and bring it down. And you want a guy like Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson to do those things out of structure. But in terms of, of Burrow's profile, is there anything really that maybe not a lot of people know that kind of points towards the direction that he can kind of become that? Yeah, I think the thing that points it out is his grading outside of the pocket, his grading late in the snap. We look at grades, we, uh, 
grade differentials and his grade on throws within 2.5 seconds of the snap versus grades on throws 2.6 seconds after. And he does a good job when the play is extended, pushing the ball downfield. And the reason those plays are valuable, and I think this gets missed sometimes, is when the play breaks down, the coverage breaks down. And big plays are to be had. If you have the arm talent, you have the vision, you have the ability to get outside the pocket and push the ball downfield. That's when, like you saw on that third and 15 or whatever it was in the Super Bowl, play breaks down a little bit. Patrick Mahomes is able to extend it just enough to get the ball over the top to Tyreek Hill. I think big plays happen when the play breaks down, and that's why that, that is important. It's not like you need to create outside a structure to get the dump off of. That's not the case. They're the check down. The thing is when the play breaks down, coverage you know goes into scramble drill. It gives the advantage to the receiver, and if you have a quarterback that's capable of keeping his eyes downfield with enough arm talent to push the ball downfield, that's when you can you know steal those explosive plays from the defense. On a play that otherwise the quarterback either gets sacked makes a bad decision, opts for his check down throwaway on those plays that are given to the defense, you can steal those plays back and actually steal explosive plays. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to kind of uh, switch the conversation more towards free agency and towards, more towards positional, positional value. Uh, you guys just kind of released uh, your, your Winsboro replacement project. You released it to the public uh, this past December. What have you learned the most about positional value on both sides of the ball? And if you had to explain, like, Winsboro replacement of a guard to somebody, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I have to tip my cap first to Dr. Eric Eager, a data scientist with us here, who's done a lot of the work behind Winsboro replacement for PFF. Also, George Jahuri, who is our director of research and development. He has done a massive a fantastic job of, of managing, you know, Dr. Eric Eager and then also some other guys on his staff, Timo Riske, who on Twitter is PFF underscore Moo. But he, he the, the German-born monster, <laughs> this guy is brilliant. And we've, we've added some absolutely fantastic, talented members to our research and development team, guys that aren't always writing content, aren't always in the public face. But what they do behind the scenes and, and what they do for us here at PFF is very valuable. So I had to tip my cap to them. But what I've learned, really, from Winsboro Replacement, is and from a positional value standpoint is affect the passing game. If you positively affect the passing game with any level of consistency, you're going to rank high in wins above replacement. And for that reason, the quarterback position, which dictates what happens on you know 80, 60 to 80 percent of plays, is obviously going to rank higher compared to other positions. I don't think that's a newfound thing. I mean, right. how much they matter is maybe something that's new, but knowing that they matter the most is not necessarily new. What we found after that is. Positions that do affect the passing game, like wide receiver, cornerback, start to come up closely after quarterback because they have, again, a very direct relationship with how the passing game is performing. And another thing that we did learn is this pass rush versus coverage debate. It's something that we came out with, I think, late last year or even early last year, talking about what's more important, the pass rush or coverage. And we found that while pass rush is more stable, you can predict a good pass rusher better than you can predict a good cornerback year over year. It's not as valuable in the moment. Cornerback play, and specifically coverage play, is much more valuable. The problem is it's more volatile. It's hard to predict a coverage unit having similar success year over year, or even game over game, because of so many factors at play. But if you have a good coverage unit, it is more valuable than a good pass rushing unit. That's something that I think wins above replacement. Without it, we couldn't have decided. To go back to the last part of that, the guard position. Wins above replacement because... A big part of Winsboro's replacement, too, is understanding replacement level. And replacement level for each position is different. Replacement level for quarterback is much lower than, you know, replacement level for guard in terms of getting above replacement level at guard is very, very difficult because you have to you have to add so much in the passing game. Holding penalties can destroy you. False starts, these things. And it's so hard to recruit recoup that value when you do make those penalties knowing, like, 
you can have you know five yards, ten yards of loss on a play, but it's so hard for a guard to gain that back. And I think we've seen that with guard and tackle and center, all the offensive linemen. Like you're committing penalties that have direct relationships to losses of ten yards and things like that. While to get that back, you're going to need to make several impact blocks in the hole. You're going to need to not allow pressures for 100, 200 pass blocking snaps. And it's just so hard to recoup your value based off that significant negatives that you can have in your game. And um, I, it, it is difficult to explain, but all of it is based on our play-by-play grading, which if you're not familiar with, we grade every player on every play at the NFL, college, XFL level, even the AAF. We've done some high school stuff from negative two to positive two. Every player on every play, negative two to positive two. That's zero in the middle of that being an expected play. And negative two being the worst thing you've ever seen, something atrocious, something that you really can't take back. And two being, an example being Eli Manning's throw to Mario Manningham in the Super Bowl situationally and all those things, very high difficulty throw. And that play-by-play grading is really heavily factored into wins above replacement to let us know the value of this player. Right. And I think just specifically with the guard position, like the offensive line just um, put, putting together a solid one was such an interesting debate because it really, it, like one bad player on that unit can make the whole unit, you know, dissipate. It really comes to an interesting perspective of how do you build it and how do you attack it in free agency and how these guards are getting paid 13, you know, 13, 14 million dollars and they're approaching tackle level money. So, in, in your opinion, the best way to build an offensive line for an offensive line that has multiple holes, like the Bengals, for example, like would you advise them to go out and get one of these Joe Thunies or Brandon Scherz or maybe more focus on the draft as a more cost effective way of doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that we've talked about a ton this offseason. I, I think from a positional value standpoint, it's outside and tackle, guard, center because the tackles have are more susceptible at allowing pressures. That's a big part of it. And when you're more susceptible to allowing pressures, you're going to have either a highly positive or negative effect on the passing game as opposed to guards and centers. But free agency, if you need to win now, is the way to go for offensive linemen. We see time and time again people try and fill need in the draft. I want to fill need. We need an offensive tackle. We need a guard. I'll tell you right now, the best rookie guards do not grade above 70, 75 in their first suit, first one, unless, two unless years. Unless it's Quentin Nelson. Unless it's Quentin Nelson. Unless you have like this generational, which we call like high, you know, can't miss type of player. But like, look at this past year, one of the highest graded tackles was Juwan Taylor, the Florida guy, for Florida, former Florida prospect for, and he earned a 69 grade. And that's how good rookie off the tackles usually are, like the best ones at each position. That's why, you know, PFF says this all the time, don't draft for need, draft, you know, draft the best player available because you rarely find that Though you need this position, he's rarely going to have a positive enough impact like a, what Nick Bosa did at edge defender is very rare. After him, Josh Allen, Brian Burns, Cleland Furl did not have come close to the impact that Nick Bosa had. It's rare to see a rookie have the impact that Nick Bosa or, say, like a Quint Nelson had a few years ago. And The Cincinnati Bengals are a young team that is rebuilding. It's not a team that's in a win-now window, I would say. I don't think that's a hot take. Right. But with that being said... Investing in your offensive line in the draft is never is never a bad thing to do. The problem is is when you force it. Do not force it at the top of round two. Do not force any position at any of these rounds. Draft the best player available because there are enough holes across the you know across the board along that roster for you, to a point where you can afford to go at different positions. However, if you're looking for help along the offensive line now, whether the Bengals should do that is up for debate. If you are. Free agency is that option. You more often see positive impact, high impact players at the at offensive line get signed in the free agency than you do see them come in. It's like, oh man, we just drafted this tackle and he's already a top 15 tackle. That doesn't happen often. And it, and it won't happen even with the tackle class we have here. Tristan Wirfs, Jedrick Wills, Andrew Thomas, 
Josh Jones of Houston. There's, there's guys like all four of those guys could go in the first round, and all four of those guys could suck in year one right. because they're inexperienced. They're all younger players. I, outside of Josh Jones, Tristan Wirfs just turned 21, an underclassman. Jedrick Wills, I think, is still 20 years old. Like, you do not develop, you do not mature at a very tough, greedy position like offensive line until you are 22, 23. It's a big reason why. Dalton Reiser has had so much success as a rookie. Guy's like 24 years old coming out of Kansas State, already mature, already in a position where he can, you know, go toe to toe with some of these guys. He played tackle at Kansas State, kicked into guard for the Denver Broncos, and was one of the highest graded rookie guards this past season. And even then, don't think he cracked cracked the top 20 among other veterans. Yeah, so trenches is more to the defense now. It's been offensive line for the Bengals, and it's been linebackers. And linebackers more has been more more of a constant problem for the better part of a decade. And in, in terms of that positional value as well, even for a team like the Bengals, who just cannot seem to hit on guys and linebackers and just neglect the position entirely, even if the positional value of a linebacker doesn't match a, a cornerback or defense man, would you advise a team who just desperately needs them to just overinvest in that position, or is it just about drafting better? I, I think it's about drafting better. I think I, I talked to Dan Horde recently, asked him what's the biggest need for the Bengals, and he was expecting me, after quarterback, expecting me to say linebacker, and I said corner, because corners of higher positional value. William Jackson has not been the same guy since 2017. You don't have a ton of value in Drake Kirkpatrick, who could be cut this offseason. I mean, you need cornerback more than you need off-ball linebacker, even though it has been a constant problem for the Bengals. But I'll say this, not a ton of teams have great off-ball linebackers right now. I mean, look at the Kansas City Chiefs. You're not talking about their off-ball linebacker. You look at San Francisco 49ers. Drake Greenlaw, I think, was former undrafted or day three pick, and they, they signed Quan Alexander to high money, but he was injured for most of that season. And then you have Fred Warner, who is a freak athlete. I think that gets to my next point at off-ball linebacker. Find athletes at that position. If you are drafting or finding them in free agency, go after guys that are on the skinnier side, that are 240, 235 pounds. A guy that comes to mind is um, Akeem Davis-Gaither of App State, a linebacker in this class that's going to probably weigh in 235, maybe he hits 240. He said, told me at the Senior Bowl he's trying to eat like 6,000 calories a day <laughs> to get up there. But I was talking to Drew Tranquil, the former Notre Dame linebacker that now plays for the Chargers before he was drafted, and he was tagged as undersized. And I asked him, you know, what do coaches bring up in that regard? And he says, you know, honestly, there are a ton of teams that tell me they, they want me to lose weight. There are a ton of teams that say we play our linebackers at 220 because how important coverage is. And I think for that reason, there aren't a ton of top-tier talents at off-ball linebacker in the NFL right now. I mean, Luke Keekley, one of the best, if not the best, just recently retired. After that, I mean, we could argue Bobby Wagner is up there. Joe Schober is soon to be a free agent. But after that, it's hard to find like, these elite players at off-ball linebacker because – position and its importance and its responsibilities has changed so significantly in the last 10 years. The need to defend the run is not as important. The need to play coverage is so much more important. I think that change in responsibility, that change in assignment for up on linebackers has created this kind of gap in talent in the NFL. It's hard to find a good one. And for that reason, you see some forcing need. Pittsburgh Steelers trading all the way up for Devin Bush and him not playing super well out of the gate, but they traded up for an athlete. That guy ran in the 4-4. So did Devin White. Those are the guys that you invest in. And to get back to Cincinnati Bengals, an off-ball linebacker, this isn't a particularly great linebacker class. It's not one where you really want to force it in this one. And you you think about Patrick Queen of LSU. Isaiah Simmons will be gone after they do take Joe Burrow. But Patrick Queen of LSU, Kenneth Murray of Oklahoma, those guys have speed, but they're still very raw. Keem Davis-Gaith is a guy on day two you start to feel comfortable with. But do not draft that position over better players. Just don't, especially in this class. And in free agency, there are some options. Maybe you go for a Joe Schobert, Blake Martinez. You can go find an off-ball linebacker to plug in. But again, prioritize those positions of high positional value and your defense gets better. 
So with the Bengals coached down the senior bowl, and we saw they did, they did some experience with Jonathan Grinder for the South team where they played more of an off-ball position, which obviously he didn't have a lot of experience in Florida. But with that, with their, they kind of changed their scheme a little bit where they went to more in, into odd fronts and they you know, tried to prioritize less linebackers and tried to put less linebackers on the field. So in a weak linebacker class, um, how do you project like a guy like Zach Bond, like a Josh Huge, who may be more undersized to be edge defenders, but could fit well in a scheme like Cincinnati where they play multiple fronts and you can play them on the line of scrimmage as well? I think we're going to see a lot more Zach Bond, Josh Uchi, Kyle Vanoy types. These guys that can play off-ball linebacker in a pinch or maybe on passing downs, primary passing downs, but also rush the passer at a high level because that position is becoming a ton of value. Adding athletes to your defense is a, is, is has a ton of value. Zach Bond, Josh Uchi are two of those guys. I, th- I could see those guys working in creative defensive schemes like what Don Wink Martindale runs with the Baltimore Ravens. He, you know, he doesn't have a star at off-ball linebacker, but he has guys that can blitz. He has guys that can get down on the line of scrimmage and do different things. I think that's creative defensive coordinators, just like creative offensive coordinators, are, are, offer a ton of value in today's NFL. If you're willing to get creative and find new ways to get athletes on the football field and use people in different ways from an assignment standpoint, that's where you're going to see a ton of value. I think with Zach Vaughn, Josh Ucci, don't bring them in and just play traditional 4-3 and have them play off-ball linebacker every snap. If you're going to bring in a guy like that, you need to get creative with his role. And if that's what the Bengals are at and they have someone in place that can manage that process, I think it's a huge, a huge plus. Sure, and I just kind of want to end it on more uh, conceptual questions, I guess, about the whole process, whatever. Um, you know, you, you guys prioritize on you know, signature stats and getting more context and a little more of the box score stats. What is one traditional box score stat on both sides of the ball, really, that does not really predict future success and you kind of wish that the public would wait a little bit less? Yeah, I, I think I've, uh, on the offensive side of the ball, I'm trying to think of maybe one that I hate the most. I, I, mean, I mean, we think about for like t- maybe five, ten years ago, snaps played was something offensive lineman. You know, was something like that. that was a big thing. Oh, he has eight starts, you know, over the last, or six, 32 starts in two years or something. That is something that does not predict future success. And another thing on offensive side of all, yards per carry, yards per touch, some of those rate metrics are kind of outdated, especially when you compare yards after contact versus yards before contact. I, I, I think total receptions, total receiving yards can also have be filled with some faux production depending on alignment, um, how often screens. You look at a guy I bring up as, is Brian Edwards, the South Carolina receiver who a lot of people like for his production, breakout rating, whatever the hell they're coming up with now. But it, 40% of his, over 40% of his targets were screens. Over 60% of his production comes on targets within five yards of the line of scrimmage. There, there's context to these large wholesale numbers like receiving yards and receptions that needs to be understood to understand the value of a certain player or a certain position. Defensively, there's a ton. I mean, sacks do not predict future success like total pressures or pressure rate, pass win percentage, and things like that. Advanced statistics that not just PFF has. ESPN is looking at pass win rate, you know, football outsiders, etc. Another one is tackles. Tackles are great in IDP leagues for fantasy, but tackles do not predict future outcomes. I mean, you can look at a handful. In addition to not being predictive, tackles do not are not descriptive of success of current players. I mean, having over 100 tackles at off-ball linebacker used to be a feat, used to be something that it was indicative of success. Now it's, you know, how often did you play? And how often were you beating coverage? You look at a, you look at off-ball linebackers that have a ton of tackles, that means they're allowing a lot of receptions. I think it's Darius Leonard, his rookie year was highly, you know, the tackle number that he had as a rookie was absurd, but he also allowed, allowed a lot of receptions in coverage. And when you do allow receptions in coverage, you're a lot closer to the ball and you're getting tackles. I think tackles is another number that people put too much stock in sometimes. 
Yeah, and I think the tackles conversation has come up a lot because I, I, I'm one who, who values market share to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and still tackle market share is, is is a thing for linebackers. And you, you look at like the past, you know, great, you know, Pro Bowl All Pro players. They they tended to have you know high soul tackle market share in college. Well, when it goes to the NFL, it, it is more about context. And do you, do you think there's 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 got to be like some way to a guy who's constantly around the ball because more tackles primarily means there's more run stops and coverage stops as well. 100%. I, I think there's definitely there's definitely some correlation to that success. I, I however, just don't think that the overall tackle number is something we should, you know, you know pound, our, pound the table for. I think market share, I think, is getting closer. Thinking mm-hmm. about this guy was around the ball more often than the rest of his team or, and, and things like that. I think there's also – I also can get on board with a lot of the market share numbers for receivers. You know, looking at a receiver that had 800 yards in an offense that only passed for 2,000 as opposed to a 1,400-yard receiver in an offense that passed for 5,000, that is – those are those are good context numbers. Mm-hmm. I think market share is one of those ones that can have some predictive power at the collegiate level and also with tackles too. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about um, pass blocking, run blocking, grading for offensive linemen because mm-hmm. it seems like, for the most part, I think um, the, the, your grading system does a great job of giving us a, a good, you know, thirty-five hundred. Uh, view about what a player is good at when he's not in terms of where he plays. It just seems like offensive line grading gets a lot of controversy with you know more more so film guys. So is there would you say that offensive linemen get more context in terms of like their traits rather than just production? Is there more um, context in their evaluation of their grading than other positions or is it just basically the same like production? Honestly honestly I think traits are very important, especially when you're evaluating from the college level to the pros because it's it, you know traits translate. You know, that, that's the thing. Why, why traits were originally or have been for the longest time been scouted at such a high rate is because traits translate. A guy that's 6'6", at college, it guess what? It's 6'6 in the NFL. And there's stuff, there's that stability to it that you can feel comfortable with. Like 10-yard mm-hmm. splits, 40-yard dash, vertical, all that stuff translates to the next level because it doesn't go away. There's things like production at the college level does not translate to the NFL level all the time at, at high percentages. If you have 1,000 yards receiving in college, it doesn't mean you're going to have 1,000 yards receiving in the NFL. And I think that tra- the stability in traits has led to comfortability. However, we've gotten better, and PFF specifically has gotten better at production, valuing production and, and grading and, and doing adding more context to box score stats to where production can actually have predictive power at the next level. Our offensive line and defensive line grades, play-by-play grades, have some of the highest predictive power of any of the grades we have, year over year in the NFL and going from college to pro. Because we've done such a great job of, of turning offensive line play and defensive line play into kind of this binary win-loss type of thing, looking at do you lose the block? Do you win the block? And, and obviously, it's not perfect. I mean, none of it is perfect. Right. A lot of it, you know, there's mistakes in every, all data. I mean, even tackles gets, you know, there's mistakes in that data. But what matters is how predictive is it? And we've seen it have more predictive power than a lot of other things like arm length, 40-yard dash time, all those things. And for that reason, we start to place confidence in it. We don't place confidence in our grades unless they do offer some form of predictive power. And if they don't, we change the process. We try and improve it. We try and find other data points to collect. And I think that's something that gets lost in kind of the controversy with PFF and these nerds that are just watching tape. (laughs) I mean, we are constantly looking at the value of these numbers. We're not throwing out an 88.8 grade unless we feel confident about it having some type of value, whether it is descriptive or predictive. Yeah, for sure. And I think with the comment coming up, it's a good time to ask. In terms of finalizing like the, the, the draft rankings and the grades, how much does athleticism testing go in? Because obviously mo- most of your stuff is production-based, but how mm-hmm. much 
does athleticism for specific, you know, for certain positions go into, you know, the final grade and how you see them projecting into the NFL? It's massive. I'll say it right now. It's massive. Our doc, you know, Dr. Eric Eager, to, tip, to go back to this guy, this guy right now is working on our college to pro projections that we're currently working to provide to NFL teams about, you know, what certain things, you know, translate to the next level, translate to success at the next level. And we're putting together currently an athletic score using the combine measurables, pro day measurables, all of those things that has predictive power. We see it at certain positions more than others, like edge defender, receiver, like getting athletes at these key positions, you see translating to success at the next level. That's why it is very important. It's not necessarily important to scout it and have your, your stopwatch out in the stands, but it is important to take it into account because you, you look at it as like a percentile of uh, a percentile of a success at the next level. Like when you're drafting a player, you're hoping he reaches his 99th percentile, but a player A's 99th percentile is a lot different than player B's if player A is a better athlete. Mm-hmm. And I think you can move your window of success higher if you're if you're a better athlete, if you have better size, better measurables while your window be here. But however, where that window comes down is this guy has all the tools in the world, all the traits in the world, but none of the production because he's whatever for whatever reason, while this guy who doesn't have those traits can reach to where that guy could be because he's better from a production standpoint. I think thinking about players and their evaluations as this like window of outcomes, like this window of outcomes for like let's say like a Tristan Wirfs. The window of outcomes for a Tristan Wirfs, he has a higher, you know, a higher ceiling than other players that don't have his athleticism, don't have his raw strength and power. But he, is his floor lower than some of these other guys' ceiling? Possibly. I mean, I think it's important to look at evaluation like that. Look at player evaluation as hey, there's a window of outcomes or or. Uh, a box of outcomes with this player. This guy has a, a higher ceiling. This guy has a lot lower floor. I think there's value in, in, in those terms and looking at it in that way. One, one final question. So just plain and simple, three broad steps that the Bengals seem to follow this offseason. Okay. I think it is draft Joe Burrow. <laughs> First step is draft Joe Burrow. I think it's been overthought because, you know, in Southeast, people want to talk about something. Should they trade for it? What about Herbert? If he presses at the Senior Bowl, there's a lot of things that can happen, you know, and people want to talk about it. People want to create content. But I think first step is draft Joe Burrow. Two, I think, is approach the next rounds of the draft by drafting the best player available with in mind that you're building around Joe Burrow. Build around him. Add players, add talent that is going to create a better situation for this new quarterback. And I think um, and free agency, I think it's don't spend big. Don't you don't have to spend big to win. Spend in the right ways. I think you have to be understand what you be creative with how you develop these contracts. Be creative with how you use that money so you avoid getting locked into bigger deals, locked into deals that you don't want to see. And if I could add a fourth step, it is approach the offseason with you know with not super high expectation. I mean, approach twenty twenty with low expectations compared to like people think Joe Burrow's taking them to the Super Bowl next year. I think going into this next season with under, you know, understanding where your current situation is and knowing that the expectation should not be set at 16-0 I think is important because it also allows you to find wins, find, find some wins in this schedule even if it does become a 6-8 win type of season. I think setting proper expectations, working on player evaluation, building around Joe Burrow, making sure Jonah Williams stays healthy is important. We hope you enjoyed this special interview with Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus on the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and keep it to us for other special interviews coming down the road. Our thanks to Austin and to Pro Football Focus for their time.